Welcome to Reflections on Interpretation, Talking Story with Guides and Interpreters. I am Tim Merriman, your host, coming to you from the Big Island of Hawaii. And today we're talking story with Maricar Donato, the owner of Washington Tours and Events in Washington, D.C. Well, hello, Maricar. It's wonderful to see you today. How are you? Hi, Tim. Aloha. <laughs> hello. <laughs> Greetings from Washington, D.C. Well, I haven't been to Washington, D.C. in a long, long time, but I used to go there three to four times a year for meetings with the chiefs of interpretation of all the federal agencies. And I've been away from that uh, kind of work so for about 11 years. So I'm curious to learn more about you and more about what you're doing in Washington, D.C. But I want to start back a little earlier, if I may, and ask, where did you grow up? And did you even have an idea that this might be a career for you? Yeah, well, it's it's true. I've had quite a long journey. I was born, raised, educated in Manila, Philippines. And I lived there all the way through college. And then I went uh, on a trip to New York. That was a graduation gift of my father in New York City, Manhattan. And I worked as a social worker. So that was my first introduction to the profession. My brother lived there, so I went to follow him as per my father's request, because that was the first time I left the islands. And so I liked it, but I never knew that I would land in a job as a social worker. And I had no experience in dealing with uh, drug-addicted unwed mothers. Oh so that was my first uh, culture shock, the very young age of 22. So, you know, from there I left, I couldn't take the, it was too much for me. Um, and so I left for Paris, France, and I lived there for a year. Uh, and that's where I started taking French classes in, I call Berlitz. I lived there with as an au pair. Um, so I lived with a German family who were diplomats for the German embassy in Paris. So I was also listening to the German language in the, um, at the same time that I was learning French. So I was having all these languages in my head and in my life, not knowing that one day they would come as a great use for, for all my tourists and guests. Uh, but then I went back to the Philippines, and because I already was speaking French so well, they got me to Air France in the Philippines, and that was my first experience in the tourism industry. So I worked with Air France. I was um, a ground stewardess at the airport, meeting and greeting all the French people arriving. And because I was so fluent in the language, you know, I was connecting really well. So I think with that exposure, it opened my whole journey into the tourism world, working with the airline company, you know. And so life went on and went on. And I found myself going back to Paris because I met a, a guy and we fell in love. And we went to Paris and I went back and lived there again for six and a half years. So that was a big chunk of my life and I'll never regret it, although it hurt because, you know, he, it didn't work out. And so I came to Washington after that. So I've been living in Washington for over 38 years now. Amazing. Yeah. Yeah. I first visited Paris in 1968. 
And I'll never, wow. <laughs> yeah, I'll never forget it because um, we got off at station Odeon and rode an elevator to street level and it opened up and on the left were riot police with, with helmets and shields. And on the right were demonstrators uh, with red flags. And we went with our suitcases and ran down an alley fleeing. <laughs> it was 1968. It was an interesting. Yeah. And I'd, I'd spent the summer in Madrid living with a family whose son had lived with me in high school. So it was a wonderful experience. But Paris, uh, Lisa and I went there on our honeymoon. Uh, we, yeah, wonderful. Yeah, yeah, beautiful, beautiful city. Right. You know. Uh, did you have a college background that uh, fits with what you're doing or? Yes, in the Philippines. No, I never realized that in college, I just took English literature as my major subject. And um, I never realized that one day I would be doing what I'm doing today. It never happens that way. So all of that was just, you know, as I was sitting in my in my college classes, I felt a call to serve internationally. I didn't know where, how, when, but I could feel that in my heart, you know, I would be working in a diplomatic section. I was thinking maybe an embassy or something like that. So I was really attracted to the international world, having lived in Paris and New York already. And I was I was thinking maybe this is all connecting somewhere in, in how the stars aligned. And that's how it happened. You know, these languages came into my life. And um, I felt like this, this is a calling for sure. So the tourism industry really came because of the Air France work that I did. And then in Paris, I worked as when I came back the second time, I worked with the World Bank travel office in the European office in Paris. That's how I landed in Washington because of the bank. I was working at the travel uh, travel office. So making reservations for the Washingtonians who would come going on mission to Africa, to Asia, they would all stop in Europe and then branch out. So I felt like, hey, there's something for me here. It may not be in Paris at this time because I was I was a temp. I was uh, temping in these jobs. But I, uh, my mother applied for my green card. And she said, better go to, to the U.S. because it's more stable for job-wise. And my family is here, my brother, my sisters, uh, they live in the U.S. So that's how I landed in Washington because of the bank. And then I worked for American Express at the World Bank in Washington as a travel counselor. And I was traveling everywhere, anywhere with Panam. It, it really just took me everywhere, all places when Panam was soaring. And so I was learning languages left and right. But then they put me to school. So I have the master's of, at GW uh, University, George Washington University. I have my master's in, in tourism administration with a focus on event management. Wonderful. And you, I read that you speak seven languages. I'm presuming, I, I'm going to mispronounce this, Tagalog or? Tagalog, yes. Yeah. And English, of course, you speak perfectly. And French, and what else? And Spanish. So Spanish, I learned it from the womb. That's what you call it. I was like um, culturally connected to the language because my mother couldn't speak 
Tagalog because, you know, she was brought up in a very Spanish culture. My grandfather is from Spain. He immigrated uh -huh. to the Philippines as a soldier. And so the culture remained with my mom. So all, all her life, all her pregnancies, and she had nine. I'm number nine. Oh, my. Um, <laughs> yeah. So she, I, was, I felt I was enculturated into the language already from the womb. And that's how I heard the language every day, every day at home. We prayed in Spanish, the food, the culture, the cuisine. She would raise us, uh, scold me in Spanish, tell me stories in Spanish. So the language was in my subconscious. As in the meantime, I was also speaking Tagalog and English because of Americans came to colonize for 50 years. And I was in school during part of those 50 years, not all, but, uh, you know, the American, the English language was also uh, taught to us. So I, so growing up, I was already speaking three. Okay. So that was until college. And then I picked up the French. I picked up uh, German. I picked up Italian <laughs> and oh now Portuguese. And <laughs> well, you know, it's, it's funny because one of the things I've said to young interpreters when I because I've I've taught interpretation in college about 20 25 years and I always told my students I said you know I I'm aware that people confuse the term interpretation as we use it where we're talking about helping people connect with stories places cultures etc with interpretation of languages or translation and I always try to make the point that I, I said, if you want to add some layers to the complexity of your career, pick up some other languages because uh, people are so mobile now. We we travel the world. I've been in 27 countries, and I know that pales against I, I meet people that have been in 80 or 100. Um, and uh, the more that you know, the and the more that you make the effort to, to speak with people in their own language, the better connection you make. So what a thing. Do you do you actually lead tours in all seven languages? Absolutely, because there's a lack of it here in Washington. Um, we have very few multilingual guides, especially who can speak in three languages uh, continuously, you know, without stopping, without thinking. It's, it's all uh, interpreting the city that we live in in three different languages. So I start maybe with Spanish. The majority of the people are mixed. There could be two Spanish, maybe 25 Italians and 10 French. And that's all in one motor coach. So you have to continuously speak in the language of choice of the guests. And I'm qualified to do that because you get tested in the language by the State sure. Department and they qualify you what level you're in. They tell you if you're intermediate, advanced, beginner. Well, I I envy you. I um, I I spent a summer in Spain. When I arrived, I remember standing at Baracas Airport, and I could not think of the word "thank you" in Spanish. I literally knew nothing, and I lived <laughs> with a Spanish family who all spoke English perfectly and refused to. And so. Um, if I wanted the salt, I had to learn to say pasa el sol pretty quickly because they weren't going to give it to me if I said pass the salt. And it was great. I got back to 
Southern Illinois University where I was working on a master's and I passed the ETS doctoral level exam in Spanish with one summer in Spain, total immersion. I, it was astonishing. So but <laughs> that's great. <laughs> I'm Amazing. Of, yeah, I'm kind of a, a funny speaker of the language because I probably sound like a third grader, just someone who really knows what they're saying and doing. Um, when I hear you say on a motor coach, how many people might you have on a tour? 45. 45. Yeah, 45. I I can I can really balance my my narration, my interpretation, my commentary, if you will, in different the, it depends on who know your audience, right? As sure. we teach at CIG, knowing your audience. So these people they buy packages, tour packages from Europe, and then they come, they we call it the Eastern Triangle. That's the name of the package. So that's the theme, Eastern Triangle. And the, the highlight of the Eastern Triangle is going to Niagara Falls oh. because it's the honeymoon capital of the world, Niagara Falls. I would not have guessed that. Yes. So we, we have a lot of young people who are on honeymoon who are gifted with uh, with the package tour. To yeah. come. It costs maybe 3,000 euros per person. Sure. Okay, so they, but it covers everything, the hotels, the motor coaches, the guides, the meals, some meals, and the attractions, the entrance fees, and, um, but not gratuity. So we have that type, okay, that's one type, that's where the languages come in, because there, there's a demand for it, because lots of people are traveling, and they cannot find a guy that is trilingual, multilingual, and can switch from one language to the other. That's wonderful. So, yeah, that's one type. There's the other type, the private family groups, which I like better because it's slower. So they we're not rushing. It's, uh, it's maybe uh, multi-generational, another type of, of audience, multi-generational. So you have the grandparents with the grandkids, with their children who are coming like a reunion. And so we tailor the commentary with different themes and we look at the memorials and we talk about the family groups of the presidents. So I tailor it, I design it according to the family, to the people, to the audience. How long are your tours? Uh, are they all just one day or in the day tours or? Yeah, it's, it's, it's very different one tour to the other because it's how much they buy the, the tour. So our tour is, has a four hour minimum, our city tour, four hour minimum. So you get paid four hours, whether they finish in two hours or three hours, you still get paid a four hour minimum. That's the that's the requirement of our association. And uh, But others are five days like this uh, Eastern Triangle. It's a five-day tour. So that's a different role that I play, which is actually a tour director. So I manage the tour and I give an overview of America because we have a lot of road time on the road. And you so, travel with them? Yes. I stay okay. with them at the hotels. Yeah, that's that's another part of the of the industry. Okay, so it's tour managing. You manage their experience. You take care that the hotels are ready, that the meals are prepared, that the guide is going to be ready when you go to 
Canada because we take a step on guide in Canada, you know, because they're the experts of the place. Yeah, Lisa Brochu, my wife, and I lead tours to East Africa, Tanzania and Rwanda. And we do the same thing. We're the tour managers, but we always have a local guide there who is a licensed guide in the country so that we're getting the expertise of these great safari guides. So I understand what you're saying. Um, I just didn't realize I've never heard that term for the Eastern Triangle. Uh, what's the other part of the triangle besides Niagara Falls? It's, we start in New York. We pick them up in New York. And then we drive to Ontario, Canada. Then we drive down to D.C., two nights in D.C., Philadelphia, back to New York. That's a triangle. If you look at the map, you know, that, that really is a perfect triangle. Sure. And all that. But the tour operators have different designs and different themes, you know, of tour packages. Sure. And they sell all over the world. Wow. How many weeks a year might you be involved in guiding? Well, at the time, now I'm slowing down because I'm really, I'm, I'm really tired. It's been almost 28 years that I'm on the road and, and uh, my voice and my knees. So, you know, as your body, as you go through this, the weather and the stress and all the complaints that you get, you know, I said, hey, you know, life is so short. I'm not, I mean, I've served, I've served enough years already and I've trained a lot of guides uh, now it's time to slow down, travel some more. And that's how I went to, to Costa Rica and South Africa this year. That was so cool. It was one of the best trips ever. Had you not been to the African continent before? Or? I have been to Kenya. When I was with the World Bank, travel office, Panam had tickets for Kenya. So I would go, you know, just to see what Africa looked like. So that was the first time. And then I never touched Africa at all until two weeks ago. That's great. And that's it. it was just an eye-opening experience for me to just be in the African continent, especially South Africa, which is for me was uh, just so beautiful. The weather, Cape Town, and the, the people, you know, it was organized by the president of the World Federation of Tourist Guide Association because she's from South Africa. So she she treated us with a really good tour, itinerary, very private, very personalized design for all of us. And we had a good time. We really had, you know, I, I'm glad I did it. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I think um, I've not done South Africa, but uh, I've been in... Uh, four or five other countries, Kenya, Tanzania, Rwanda, Malawi, and uh, amazing tented lodges, amazing wildlife lodges in remote locations, uh, hot air balloon rides over uh, wildlife preserves. It's, just, it's, it's an astonishing experience. And uh, I think it's, it's interesting that we as people who have worked our entire lives in tourism and guiding we'll take a vacation and go with a guide on a tour. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because now it's a different mindset. I'm not working. I'm yeah. just having a lot of fun. And of course, I see I see how we have, you can do it better. I, I always see that. But I don't um I, I don't bother. I just says let it be, you know, no, I, I know why I did what I did, 
you know, to sort of, you know, better, better industry, train better with the guides, uh, and why this storytelling and why uh, knowing your audience is so important. You know, I, I realize that because when they don't know where what my background is and where I'm coming from and how to relate the stories so that I can connect to it, then I said, something's missing here. <laughs> you know, I see it from that perspective now. How did you make a connection with NAI, with National Association for Interpretation? Well, it started in 2009 when uh, we had the World Federation has conferences in different parts of the world. Uh, and in 2009, Bali, Indonesia was the host country. And the, the keynote speaker was Dr. Sam Ham. Oh, great. That was the first time I even heard of him. And he was talking about interpretation. And from that day forward, I followed him and he was my mentor. So I really got into the interpretive work and I saw the similarity of what I'm doing, already doing, and what interpretation was meaning, but I did not have that natural aspect of the world, the natural heritage. I had the cultural and the historical, but not the natural. And right. that's what I, I learned through my, my um, engagement with NAI. I really learned another part of the world that I didn't know too much about. And that's what I learned in Africa too, you know, going to the wildlife, the safari, the nature trail was so beautiful. So I think now I'll continue that part. <laughs> now we've, we've done 14 trips there. As you know, Lisa and I developed the Certified Interpretive Guide course um, in, well, 1999 and 2000 was when we developed it. We actually tested it in La Paz, Mexico was the first course ever, and not in Spanish, because we we both speak a little Spanish. She reads it really well, and we would not attempt to train in it, because that would not go well. But um, that was the launch, and gosh, there's now been, I don't know, 50, 60,000 people through the course. Do you do the CIG course? Are you, You're a certified interpretive trainer, I understand. Yes. I, I just got my certification in 2021, April. Oh. Have you taught any classes yet? Mm -hmm. I taught three already. One for the uh, museum, the Smithsonian Museum. I taught this January. Wonderful. And then one for the Office of Tourism of Maryland. And then one was interested from the U.S. Capitol, their guides. But I think that will come in January. But they did make a, a call to me to ask me about if I was a CIH and a CIT. They wanted both. Sure. We actually, in Africa, we've done a lot of training in Rwanda. And we uh, they didn't want the certification. That it, it has no value for them in their political national setting. But they wanted a hybrid of the CIG course and the host course. And so that's what mm -hmm. we did. We we did more of a five-day thing that took the elements of both and put them together. So a lot of customer service uh, components out of the host course, along with the, the usual fundamentals of interpretation. You don't train virtually, I take it. Not yet. 
hopefully I, I will I will attempt to do it, but I, I feel I like it better in person because I've been training guides for a long time now and I've been training always in person. I never did it virtually until the pandemic came. So I said, maybe this is, but then guides, it's very hard to train virtually because we're out in the memorials. We, they have to know what it, how it feels to guide in, in the outer part, not, not through the, the screen, because there's no guiding that happens in the screen unless you do the Zoom, the virtual guiding. But for us, the people want is really face-to-face. -face. That's what they're paying us for, is the face-to-face and not virtual. Yeah, no, I, I much prefer face-to-face. -face. I will say this, virtually, we've had two people from Philippines coming in mm -hmm. at two in the morning and sitting there until six in the morning, taking the course, saying, well, it's unavailable to us here and I can't afford to travel to the U.S. for it. Um, so if should you ever decide to do that, I think you have a, a willing audience back in your home country of Philippines. Uh, yes, I'm I'm leaving. I'm going to the Philippines for Christmas. And I've been invited already to do not the CIG, because nobody really knows about that CIG, but maybe a, a, a practical a intro, a little teaser about the CIG. That's what they wanted, you know. So I have two, I'm going to teach in one school and the other one at the Department of Tourism. So just short uh, two-day workshops, just, just to get a feel how much they want to move forward with it. And if they want the CIG, then we, we close the deal. But right now, they don't really know what it is, you know, because they, they're, they're also good. They have a lot of... Uh, professional development programs, you know, the guides that I I, I I deal with, they're very well educated in the Philippines, but this, this interpretation is missing. It's a missing piece. They don't really know what it is. I was very impressed with the two people who took the course with us. Uh, one of them, uh, Cara Um she works as a consultant with a number of museums and organizations in Philippines. And uh, she had heard of an of interpretation. I think she had a copy of Sam Ham's book and had gotten one of our books and and wanted to know more. And so I think it's a waiting market. They just, as you say, they don't know what it is yet. When they do, I think you've got a, a big opportunity there if you want it. You mentioned Sam Ham. Who have been other important influences on your career and your work? Yeah, well, um, I went to my first NAI international conference in Paris, in Reims, in 2018. And that's where I met uh, Larry Beck and Ted Cable. And then I already had met Paul before that because he, he spoke at one of our tourist guide conventions in Philadelphia. And then he mentioned about France. So that with that, I wanted to go and find out what is this international convention. And I have been to all of them since then, since 2018, 2019, Brazil. And then I went to Costa Rica this year with them. And I love those study tours because it really fits my, my life as a guide. That's what I, but Costa Rica had a blend of both. We had lectures from experts. We had workshops. We had the tour, dinners. I love that, that combination. 
you know, so it's not strictly business and strictly conferences, which I found very interesting. But I think um, the the blending is so much better. Yeah, when we did our first international conference, we did it in Puerto Rico. And we did it purposely because we were on an, in American territory. We knew that a lot of Americans would have less trouble traveling to Puerto Rico than they would to Panama. But, um, and it was an eye opener, I think, for everybody. Uh, there's, it, those meetings aren't large, which is fine. They're, they're a smaller number of people. You really get to know people well on those uh, international conferences. And they're memorable, the just amazing experiences we've had in uh, Korea, Panama, uh, Canada, uh, just literally all over the world. So I I envy you having done those recent ones. I haven't been for a while, but uh, I keep watching them. And uh, Lisa and I may join one of them one of, the, one of these days soon. We'll see where they go next. Yeah, and that's that's where I met um, Margot Carlock. You you know Margot, the past president. Yeah, and and she when I met her in Brazil, she told me about Kruger Park. That's how it stuck in my head when she said the next international conference will be in in South Africa, and we were going to stay at Kruger Park. So from that time forward, it was in my subconscious, this Kruger National Park. So when the South Africa uh, itinerary came to my hands and they said, do you want to go? I said, are we going to Kruger National Park? They said, yes. Oh, yes, I want to see that park. Boy, I don't regret having seen the park. I saw a piece of the park, not really in full, because we only stayed the whole day from 5.30 in the morning up to closing, <laughs> but just a piece of the park, not not really the total park, which I would love. If we had an NAI international conference inside the park, that would blow me away. You know, that would be the coolest thing ever with all those animals roaming and so free, so wild, just the nature part of it. Kruger is one of those parks that I've never been to, but I belong to one of those uh, groups on Facebook uh, where people post photos from Kruger. And so I, I watch those faithfully. I'm very interesting. I've seen a lot of African wildlife, but guess what? There's things that are more common in Kruger than they are up in East Africa. And so uh, you're getting a slightly different flora and fauna. And of course, in South Africa, you've got Zulu culture, uh, whereas it's, it's more Maasai and uh, some other groups up in uh, Tanzania and Kenya. Well, I, I'm i curious, in Washington, D.C., is this mostly a tour of the monuments and the, the national parks and things in the city that you do? Yeah, yeah so that's a good question, Tim. I, I think Washington is such a diaspora of the American culture. So depending on the client, depending on what their requests, we have to tailor it. But 99%, they all have to see the Lincoln Memorial. So we have we have a theme. So I've developed already all my themes here. So we have federal government. So that's one theme, the political theme. Okay, so we show them all the tangibles, the uh, executive branch, White House, the legislative, the capital, and the judicial, the Supreme Court. So we can travel all of that 
no problem. And then we bind them together and just talk about the government, especially with school kids, because that's what they're learning in school at 13 years old, you know, all of that. And then we have another theme like presidential memorials. So all the presidents that have monuments like George Washington, Jefferson, FDR, Lincoln, Grant, you know, all of them, they have all tangible memorials. And so we interpret their stories, you know, what their leadership skills are. I, I choose, I pick and choose depending on the people. Sometimes I have military people and they all want the 10 facets of the military, which I really had to study. And wow, it was hard, but they wanted me to talk about facets with international military guests, okay, of the Pentagon. So I had all of that kind of audience. Um, and then we have the gardens. So we have the natural part. We have more of the, the mall. So we talk about the trees. I'm not an expert on that, but at least a little bit, you talk about some of the birds that we see around the flowers. We have the botanic garden. We have the arboretum, you know. So those are spaces where we have flora and fauna. And then we have the cultural piece, which is the museums. And that the people love because it's free. Most of the museums are free, the Smithsonian's. So that we also go and interpret the exhibits. Some, because Smithsonian also have their trained docents and we, the local guides, are not really specifically trained at the exhibits, but sometimes there's no docent available, so we have to do it. Sure. You know, and we don't like it because we, we can say anything we want. So they want something that's more formalized, but depending on the group again, because they don't have time. And so, so that is our city. Now, we also have churches of worship, but we bring them to different denominations because here we have everything from Buddhist to Christian to Orthodox. Um, if they want, we can do a tour of sacred sites. You know, that I do also. And then I do um, uh, Christian tours, Christian discovery, they call it, for the kids. So we pray on the bus, we, we go to mass, we, we do religious uh, activities because it's allowed. If I ever get back to Washington, D.C., I will want to go on one of your tours if I can figure out how to do that. I, I have one grandchild and he lives in Washington, D.C., Oh, he, gosh. He just graduated law school at American University and uh -huh. went to work for the Department of Justice this week. So um, I'm no doubt going to try to figure out how to get back there. So I, This time, I, my career, I've, I've served so many years already that, you know, now I, I see, see things differently and I really want to travel more. So I think I've done that. The teaching will always be in my life because I love doing it. And now helping the young people to come into the field. I'm very well connected now to the university because they're all, you know, they don't know where what profession they're going. And the tourist guide profession is not well promoted because it's a lot of retirees who are only becoming tourist guides. And we need younger people in the field, much younger, you know, because the, the audience is also getting younger. 
So we're trying to get younger folks to come. The only thing is that it's not a very stable job because we're we're only here for, if you speak one language, you don't have a job for the whole year. You're only up, up, up to October and then that's it until next year, you know, for one language speakers. Well, sure. some, if they're not creative to look for jobs. Well, I don't think we expected to lead tours in retirement, but we're doing it because one of the funny things that happens is guides and interpreters love traveling with other guides and interpreters. And uh, you have such a unique background in Paris and in Philippines and in venues that uh, I'm sure there would be people would go if you said, I'm taking a small groups, eight or 10 and <laughs> and I, I think you would very quickly have your own little uh, tours going, but I'm not trying to push you into that additional business. I'm, I'm aware you're very successful where you are doing what you do, but I, <laughs> you, you have a unique perspective of the world, having spent so much time traveling and training and working in various different settings. Gosh, Paris. Yeah, Paris was really good. A very big part of my life that really formed me, you know, defined me a lot as as a woman, as a traveler, as a tourism person, all of that. But apparently, again, it was not meant for me at the time I was there because I couldn't find the job. I was stamping at the World Bank. You know, it's a very small European office, so they didn't have room for permanent staff. So I came to Washington and immediately I got the job. Immediately I got everything, everything. Just my life was, you see, I've been 38 years here. That's <laughs> One of the things I wonder about, I will tell you that my next uh, guests on this podcast are from Australia, uh, from an area south of Perth and in Western Australia. And, uh, they're interpreters, but they also work in destination marketing. I have felt for a long time that traditional tourism doesn't understand what interpretation is or the value it has for tourism in general. Do you, you have any thoughts about that? I agree. I totally agree. And, and Sam Ham knows about that. I've been trying to bridge the two together because I think there's very strong similarities of the two fields. But however, you know, I've been trying hard. Um, but I think now, you know, like even to come to our conferences, because it seems like in the NAI, I'm the only active tourist guide that comes. I think, because I don't see any of, of, of guides that are there. I mean, there are park guides and all that, but it's different, you know, but tourist guides, I don't see them. And for the conferences of tourist guides, I don't see naturalists, they don't come to that. So why? Why not? When it's so similar, it's so close to one another. Well, you know, I, and it's, we strengthen one another. I think part of the challenge is that uh, private guide companies do invest in training, but not necessarily interpretive training. And uh, they don't understand it well enough to know why they should invest in it. And uh, it, Lisa and I wrote a book called Put the Heart Back in Your Community. And 
it didn't it did not sell well it did not find an audience but one of the things we were trying to say is that cities and smaller communities historical communities need to do interpretive planning need to train interpretive guides need to train interpretive docents because uh city level experiences can be wonderful i mean washington dc is such a rich environment for tourism that it's a logical place for people to go and want to see a lot of museums and and sites but even small towns i grew up in a little town in illinois where abraham lincoln served in the state legislature and uh, the town i grew up in when i was growing up didn't talk about lincoln didn't i mean uh, as i have been back there i think gosh i'm walking in the footsteps of abraham lincoln he was a young attorney serving in the state legislature but uh i i took a wonderful walking tour in bath england united kingdom and great docent with the community who leads interpretive tours and it just was an example of of me how uh people who visit a city and only get the bars the restaurants and the the theaters and the museums but but without a street level guide so often you're walking in historical terrain that's magical if somebody lights it up for you if you collected stories about dc through the years that you use a lot in your guiding yeah, I, I, but I also have to refresh my stories because some of the audiences are repeat visitors and I have to tailor it so that they don't hear the same stories. So I try to go to cinema, I, I go to museums just to give me new insight, new, new, new dimensions, you know, like using, for example, TikTok or artificial intelligence, something like that. You know, I play around with technology. And I try to use it so that I too don't get bored by repeating the same stories. So depending on the questions of the audience, their energy, you know, I try to incorporate fresh stories, new look at it with new eyes, you know, by because I, I go out, I travel. So I have new things going on in, in my perspective because of my movement. And I love the cinema. So I learned how to do things. And now I also use my phone as a part of, you know, what, what can I tell? What story can I tell about this place? You know, and so I teach them sometimes photography. <laughs> we go to a neighborhood like in Georgetown because you, 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 you have to have a theme. That's why the thematic part is so valuable you, because it really hooks you together. And, and then you have an anchor to, to grow with it. And so you have to choose why, what are we doing this walk for? What is our goal? What is our purpose? So all of that, what I've learned in the CIG and what I teach, it's really very dri driven by purpose, objective, what's your introduction? So every tour I have, I tailor it that way. I do like a program outline. I like that program outline. It's very focused. And so, and that's what I deliver, the program outline. So I create my mission, my purpose, my objective, and that's how I begin. You know, so as we're doing the walk, I'll say the purpose of this is to learn about Kennedy, you know, where they lived, what he did as a senator. This street alone tells so many stories of the places where they live. 
And so you, you create that theme of the walking tour. So it can be one hour, but they have a purpose for that walk. And what's nice is I always say, what is the action? What are they going to do next after the walk? What, how will they bring it forward? I always ask that. That I learned from Sam Ham because he always said that, you know, that, that the, the, so what? You know, what are you going to do next? So I try to do that with all my guests and I get outstanding comments and activities and I'm going to do this later. I'll read more about Lincoln. I'm going to, you know, donate money to the park, something like that, you know, so there's, there's an action forward. Some they don't know. So I just let it go and I just said, think about it. You know, like now for South Africa, I'm, I'm trying to ask myself, What's the next step? And I'm really fascinated now by what I saw, like the two, aqua two oceans aquarium between the Indian Ocean and the Atlantic Ocean. They built an aquarium. And I, I filmed the, the guide. I don't think she's an interpreter. It, it wasn't there. It's very factual. Right. You know, the, the, the commentary was very, very factual. So for me as a guest, you know, I had no idea about all the, the, the things I was looking at, but did not relate it to me exactly. So that's what I, I mean, uh, Tim. Well, I, I think in so many places, if the streets could talk, they would have stories to tell. And yet we speak for the streets. We can tell those stories. When I started in this field, uh, 1969, 1970. I'd never heard of interpretation. I'd been doing it for five years before I learned there was such a field and that there was a book written in 1957, uh, Interpreting Our Heritage. It was a wonderful resource. And so, um, well, I, I think you in speaking seven languages and in being in Washington, D.C., are a great ambassador for our field. And I love it that you're bridging between NAI and the World Federation of Tourist Guides Associations. Um, in my 17 years as executive director, I, I tried to bridge us to contact with as many different groups as I could. And in some cases, I would contact an organizational leader and say, I'm Tim Merriman, I'm the director of NAI, and I would love to get acquainted, and I'd never hear back from it. You go, oh, okay, well, that's not going to be a collaboration right now. But there's a time for everything. And uh, when we, when I went to NAI, it was 1995. We were a membership of about 1,800 and a staff of two. And when I left, it was a staff of 10 and membership of 5,500. And now it's up around 67, 6,800. So uh, it's it's getting around. I have been delighted to get to know you better. Is there anything you wanted to say or talk about that we've not covered? We're about at the end of our hour. Yeah, no, I think we had, we, we covered a lot. And I'm so glad that, you know, I was able to speak to you and uh, get to tell you my story <laughs> because I want to make this, you know, become part of a bigger story. Sure. Well, I always hope that the podcast creates an audio record of some of the people in our field, of their voices, their opinions, their, their life's journey. And so I uh, thank you for sharing yours with us today. And I, 
I look forward to meeting you in person sometime, someplace. So yeah. Thanks very much, Mike. I appreciate you being on Reflections on Interpretation with me today. Next Friday, I will be talking to Claire Savage and Rusty Creighton in Western Australia. Savagely Creative is their business, and uh, join us for that. Also, I want to remind folks that October 13th, Lisa will do a contract administration course for four hours via Zoom. She'll do a interpretive planning course November 7th to 10th via Zoom. You can learn more at heartfeltassociates.com. I also want to thank Mark Stoffel, who provides a beautiful mandolin music at the introduction and at the end. This was Buckminster Waltz from his coffee and cake album. I hope you have a